The scripture reading for today comes from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, the, of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Is anyone else confused by this exchange between, between Thomas and Jesus? First, Jesus appears out of nowhere. He graciously responds to Thomas's unbelief. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. It's as if he were healing Thomas's unbelief, just like he'd tell a lame man to walk or spit in a blind man's eye. But then Jesus gives some kind of backhanded reprimand. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Like he's insulting Thomas for not believing on his own. As if the disciples who had seen Jesus just a week or so before were better than Thomas. Even though they had to see Jesus' wounds too before they believed. Maybe it had something to do with Thomas's threat. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, I will not believe. Me and Thomas, I I think we have something in common. I recently returned from two months of cultural research in an area of rural Kenya called Pokot. I'm a master's student of anthropology and religion, which means I'm fascinated by what and why people believe in some greater power or order or whatever. But I don't quite buy into religion myself. I don't know if I would call it doubt Exactly. It's more like wanting to double-check someone else's work. Like a math problem. It's accountability is what it is. What if that missionary or pastor or disciple got something wrong, left something out, or mixed up the facts? 
Me and Thomas, we're just fact checkers, copywriters, wound pokers. Unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. That would be a morbid joke, wouldn't it? If a bunch of your buddies came up to you a few days after a funeral and told you that, you know Fred? Well, he isn't actually dead after all. And by the way, you just missed him. We all hung out last night, threw back some brews, had a few laughs. Too bad you're out of town. I can't help but wonder if Thomas actually did take the other disciples seriously, and that he was just jealous. Maybe he actually did believe them. Jesus is alive, and you got to see him? Maybe Thomas just wanted to have the same opportunity the other disciples had, the opportunity to touch Jesus and be certain. Maybe Thomas actually believed and knew Jesus would come back to greet him if he said that he didn't believe. Jesus wouldn't want him not to believe. He would have to come and see Thomas. In 1983, Father Anton was sent on a holy mission by the Vatican to Alalay, one of the hardest to reach places in Kenya. He believed his purpose was to introduce the word of God to the people of Alalay. Well, not so. He discovered that much of Christian scripture was already present in the oral history of the Pakot people. They already knew the story of Moses crossing the Red Sea, although the Pakot know him as Lomosai. The Pakot say those were their ancestors who started their long migration from Egypt. And they already observed Passover, still marking their doorways with the blood of a lamb as their traditions instruct. When Father Anton and the other missionaries realized that the Pakot already knew much of the Old Testament, they agreed that the god of Pakot, who they call Tororot or Nuru, is the same god of Christianity. And so the holy mission changed from spreading the word of God to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. But the Pakot also claimed they already knew Jesus too, at least sort of. They knew him as genius, a simple but wise teacher. Formal Christianity has spread like wildfire in Kenya, despite what was or was not already established theologically in Pakot before the missionaries showed up. And I can understand why. It's not just the significant similarities between Christianity and Pakot tradition. The Pakot culture and environment also made it, made it easy. The other reading for today is from 1 Peter. Verses 8 and 9 read, Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For are you receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls? One Sunday, I was driving through a small marketplace on my way to Alalay with Michael Kimpour. <clears throat> He's the director of Daylight Center and School and my travel companion for my Kenya trip. We slowed with our windows rolled down to see if a church was nearby. Sure enough, we heard singing. The church was about half the size of a doubles tennis court, and there was a congregation of about 30 people inside. It had a tin roof and tree branches as bars in the open windows. Residue of English words and chalk on the dirt walls were evidence that the church doubled as a schoolhouse. Much of the congregation was made up of women. Many of their men were likely away on a nomadic journey, finding new pastures for their livestock because of the intense drought. The women probably hadn't seen their husbands in months, and their clothing was dirty and torn, but they sang and jumped and clapped their hands. Red powder from the dirt beneath their feet 
lifted into the air and into my nostrils, the smell of earth and sweat. I felt awkward, both in standing still or joining in. Standing still just magnified how out of place I looked and felt, and jumping, jumping was dishonest. I didn't feel as happy as they looked, and given their circumstances, I couldn't understand how they could be so happy either. Between songs, the congregants took turns introducing themselves. One woman stood and said she was happy because she loves Jesus. Another woman said she was happy because she can walk. At one point, she could not walk, but Jesus healed her. She did a jig up and down the short aisle and people clapped. A man stood up to say that he had tuberculosis, but when he first came to this church, they prayed over him and he was healed, and now he believes. The lowland Pakote live in, a des in desert-like conditions. I was constantly attacked by flies, looking to drink the water from my lips and eyes, and my skirt would often get caught in the thorny bushes and trees that seemed, at times, to be the only form of vegetation, if one can even call it that. Then there was the constant stench of camel, cow, and goat dung. There were also donkeys and sheep in the wetter, cooler areas of the Cote. I remember thinking to myself that this must be, that this must have been what it was like in Bible times. Like I had been transported back 2,000 years to the time of herds, boys, and animal sacrifices. I would like to believe that this is why Christianity caught on so quickly in Pakot. They don't need someone to translate the cultural context of the Bible for them, because they live like that themselves. It's in their story, it's, it's in their story and lives organically. There is one man, a Pakot elder, who I interviewed for my research. He told me about a ritual his village performed recently. He poured beer made with honey onto the ground and prayed for rain. I asked him if, if his prayers were answered. He took a moment, then said it wasn't about whether God answered the prayer, whether he sent or did not send rain. It was about fulfilling an obligation to God. By, by performing this ritual, he felt fulfilled. If rain does not come, the elders will simply meet again to pray. I found myself envious of the Pakot. Way out in the middle of what at first appeared to be God-forsaken land, what with the hunger and drought and tribal warfare, I was envious. Because even in terrible conditions, the Pakot rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. Like me, they've never seen Christ for themselves. It's almost as if the Bible-like conditions they live in and their oral history connecting them to the instances in the Bible bring them closer to experiencing Jesus or something. Having watched those women jump in that dusty church, I caught myself hoping that I might experience Jesus too, that I might have the same thrill and energy and joy. Like Thomas, I wanted to shout, I will not believe unless to challenge Jesus to show his face. It was then that I realized that I was hoping, not doubting, and that by hoping I was, do I dare say, believing. I looked to the women at my left and right, and then, ever so timidly, I began to sway, and then to jump. <laughs> 